Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you here at Grace Church, and um, we want to welcome you to Wednesday night service here on campus for a little bit of Wednesday night Bible study. For those of you that are joining us via Facebook uh, or live stream, we want to welcome you as well, and we thank you for taking the time to tune in wherever you are, and we trust that tonight's service will be a blessing to all of you. Look at your favorite neighbor, give them a real big smile, and tell them, you look so good. <laughs> Pastor Murph commented uh, before service how nice it would be for someone to walk up and greet one of us the same way that Avery uh, Henson gets greeted. Hey, Avery, how Avery can't even talk to you. <laughs> he can't talk to you, but you are definitely more excited to see Avery than you are to see me or Pastor Murphy. It would, be, it would just be a, a pleasant thing. Michelle, I want you to work on that, to, to, to greet us that way. How about that? Let me make a few announcements before I get myself in more trouble. First of all, we want to uh, remind you that uh, we have um, put something up on the website uh, for those of you that wish to support uh, Ukraine and um, our people there and missionaries there. And so there is a tab on the website if you would like to donate, that's available. We also want to uh, make this announcement. Uh, on April 1st and 2nd and at the campgrounds in Tioga, there will be a work day for the public dorms. And they are in need of people willing to paint, people that have some basic carpentry skills, and if you just know how to clean something real good. But if you're interested in um, contributing to that effort, please contact the church office. And then we also want to remind you, as it's been announced a few times, that Brother Greg Albritton is going to be back with us in service for a series of services. And uh, April 3rd, the 10th and 17th, Brother Greg will be back with us, and we are anticipating great services with him. And as always, you can stay tuned with what's happening here at Grace Church uh, by downloading the app or by clicking on the events tab on our website. I don't want to be morbid tonight, um, but... Something popped up in my Google feed today, and I clicked on it. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's called a death clock. Anybody? No brave souls in the car? Oh, there's a couple. Okay. Thank you for having my back. So this is, um, this is a place that you can go, and you can put in your age. Uh, you can put in your current uh, body mass index. Uh, you can put in whether or not you are a smoker, whether or not you're a drinker. And it will tell you how long you have to live. And so I was all in on the death clock this afternoon. And uh, if it is accurate, based on their calculations, I will die on Monday, the 6th of January, 2053. So that means that I will live to be 79 years, zero months, and 28 days old. So that means I have 11,253 days, 16 hours, 25 minutes. Oh, and oh my gosh, the seconds are counting down right now. I didn't, I didn't see that until this moment. 11,253 days, 16 hours, and 25 minutes and counting. Scripture does say that it is appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. I don't know if the death clock is accurate. If it is, I've got a little bit of time left to figure some things out. 
But it might not be. I may not have that much time. Folks, none of us know. We don't know. And the only reason I mention it tonight is because it did make me stop and think, what would I do differently if this was truly accurate? Who would I speak to differently? Who would I make a point of talking to? How would my actions change on a daily basis? How would my prayers change if this is true? What types of dreams would I have? What would motivate me throughout my days? Just, just something to think about. I know the death clock isn't scriptural, but it sure can make you think. We do have an appointed time to meet our Savior, and I want to make the most of whatever time I've got here on this earth before that happens. Amen? God bless you this evening as Pastor comes. Well, according to the uh, death clock, my, uh, my longevity isn't quite as good as Brother Cooper's. Uh, my time of departure is sometimes in 2025, it says. So I have three years. So on that note, let's have Bible study tonight. <laughs> It does kind of make you think, and uh, but again, I don't put a lot of stock in the death clock. Uh, God has my my days and the rest of my life in the palm of His hand, and that's what I trust tonight. Great to see all of you. Great to see you tonight. Thank you, as always, for coming out to Bible study on Wednesday night. And um, tonight, on the way to church, I realized one of my greatest fears it seems like we're starting off a little on the light side tonight about things and, uh, but I realized one of my greatest fears on the way to church tonight <clears throat> uh, when I was exiting and grabbed a, a jacket out of my closet uh, it did not match these pants that I was having that I have on right now so I don't know if I made a mistake in choosing my pants or my jacket but either either way it didn't work. So uh, the jacket that is not matching what I have on tonight is hanging over the chair in my office. I did bring one, but um, I didn't want you to all the way. I told Brother Dave before church, I said, I'm a good mind to wear it anyway. Just see if anybody even notices it. it just, but it's just one of those, just, just don't match just enough to be really, really awkward. First time I've ever done that in my life. Let's see, what else can we come up with tonight and just get all this stuff over with? Um, I've actually come tonight with a, a Bible study along the same lines uh, that we've been teaching now for, uh, it's been quite a few Wednesday nights, uh, where I've talked about the law of something or the uh, standard of something, whatever that subject was. And uh, tonight should be one that uh, should applaud Grace Church across the board. Tonight I want to talk to you about the law of service. Our scripture setting is coming from Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Jesus said, but so shall it not be among you, uh, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life for, uh, to give his life a ransom 
for many. Uh, <clears throat> I know oftentimes that sometimes, oftentimes I teach uh, prevention is better than cure. And uh, I oftentimes like to do that. But that's not even the case here tonight. Uh, Grace Church has such a beautiful spirit of service. We just want to serve one another uh, to serve in whatever capacity you're asked to serve in. I think it's an amazing thing, and I applaud all of you for it. You say, well, Pastor, why are you teaching this Bible study tonight? Well, it, it probably wouldn't hurt to be reminded a little bit, but uh, I would like to, for some of you tonight to see just how valuable you are, not only here in Grace Church, but also in the kingdom of God. History says that Franklin Roosevelt's closest advisor during much of his presidency was a man named Harry Hopkins. And during World War II, when his influence with Roosevelt was at its peak, Hopkins held no official cabinet position. In addition, Hopkins' closeness to Roosevelt caused many to regard him as kind of a shadowy, sinister figure. And as a result, he was a major political liability to the president. A political foe asked uh, Roosevelt one time, said, why do you keep Hopkins so close to you, you surely realize that people distrust him and resent his influence. Roosevelt responded to that and said, someday you may well be sitting here where I am now as President of the United States. And when you are, you'll be looking at that door over there and knowing that practically everybody who walks through it wants something out of you. You'll learn what a lonely job this is and you'll discover the need for somebody like Harry Hopkins who asked for nothing except to serve you. Winston Churchill rated Hopkins as one of the half dozen most powerful men in the world in the early 1940s, and the sole source of Hopkins' power was his willingness to serve the president. One of the most important and yet one of the most neglected topics and Christianity is that of service. Uh, I know there's a lot of emphasis in our culture right now being put on people coming to church and having a purpose when they arrive at church. But uh, along with that, congruent to that, there has to be a willingness to serve if you want to have your purpose fulfilled. It comes through service. So the idea of being a service, a servant to another is indeed a foreign idea in the American mind, and it seems it is an idea that is increasingly unfamiliar to many in the church. Yet the law of service holds a prominent place in the mind of Christ and is revealed by his words on the subject. Uh, I want to just stop here for a moment and just again applaud Grace Church this Sunday, Brother Greg Alton here and brought out the basins of water, you'll remember that. I was amazed at the number of people that gathered around the people who were stepping into that water. They were literally on their knees, almost face to the carpet, to wait for them to step out of one of those basins to towel off their feet. I was really moved by that humbleness out of, uh, so, out of several of our church people, and that's the kind of attitude and spirit that I'm talking about tonight, the willingness to serve. Jesus made it a practice to do great things with 
and through those who will humble themselves in service. He made it a practice of doing great things with these people, and his ministry is full of it. In 1972, NASA launched the Exploratory Space Probe Pioneer 10, and according to Leon Giroff in Time Magazine, the satellite's primary mission was to reach Jupiter. It was to photograph the planet along with its moons and then beam all that data back to Earth about Jupiter's magnetic field, its radiation belts, the atmosphere, and so on. Uh, science regarded this as a bold plan for, at that time, no Earth satellite had ever gone beyond Mars. And they feared the asteroid belt would destroy the satellite before it could ever reach its target. But Pioneer 10 accomplished its mission and much, much more. Swinging past the giant planet in November of 1973, Jupiter's immense gravity just hurled Pioneer 10 at a higher rate of speed toward the edge of the solar system. At one billion miles from the sun, Pioneer 10 past Saturn, one billion miles. At some two billion miles, it hurtled it past uh, Uranus, Neptune at nearly three billion miles, Pluto at almost four billion miles. By 1997, 25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was more than six billion miles from the sun. And despite, uh, despite that immense distance, Pioneer 10 continued to beam back radio signals to scientists on Earth. The author of this article in Time Magazine noted, perhaps most remarkable about this is those signals emanate from an 8-watt transmitter, which radiates about as much power as a bedroom nightlight and takes more than nine hours to reach the Earth. They call it the little satellite that could. It was not qualified. It was not rated. It was not even expected to do what it did. Engineers designed Pioneer 10 with a useful life of just three years, but it kept on going and going. By simple longevity, its tiny 8-watt transmitter radio accomplished more than anybody thought possible. So it is when we offer ourselves to Jesus and to his kingdom. God can work even through someone with 8-watt abilities. God cannot work, however, through someone who quits. God cannot work through someone who quits. Mark chapter 10, verses 43 through 45, according to the message, says, Whosoever or whoever wants to be great must become a servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve and not to be served. In our text tonight that we read, I didn't read the entirety of it, and I'll explain to you what it is. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, make an, ambi an ambitious request of Jesus, this 
ambitious request illustrates the failure of the disciples to understand kingdom truth and to understand kingdom principle. Earlier when, when Jesus had spoken of his coming passion or his crucifixion, the disciples argued about who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. And now that same issue has arisen again. This time it was James and John who asked, and evidently they came to Jesus privately away from the hearing of others. And Matthew even records that their mother came with them and that it was she who was the actual spokesperson. I think all of us could probably imagine that. If there's a place in Jesus' kingdom for some kind of a hierarchy, we'd want our son, our boy, to be at the top of that. The text does not say who instigated the request, whether it was the two brothers or their mother. Perhaps all three were involved. In any event, their action was like the very unreasonable request of Bathsheba in the Old Testament. Her request to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, she asked her younger son Solomon to allow his older brother Adonijah to marry Abishag which would have been equivalent to giving Adonijah the throne. Solomon saw very quickly through that, and the Bible said he had his older brother assassinated to prevent that threat. But these two disciples in our text tonight, along with their mother, no doubt had in mind the scene of an oriental king with all the attendant servants and high officials and the two occupying positions of highest honor one on the right, one on the left. They viewed Jesus as on his way to reestablish the throne of David and they had an inflated view of their own position in it. Little could they imagine that the cross must come first and then the glory. Jesus' response called attention to their self-seeking request and it was not a request that Jesus quickly recognized. It was motivated by love. Further, Jesus indicated their self-seeking petition came out of ignorance. They did not understand that to request glory was to request suffering. For the way to glory is through the cross. Nor did they realize that those closest to Christ would be impacted the greatest. Peter spoke of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Paul wrote of the fellowship of his suffering. And Scripture promises that... The one who suffers with him will be glorified with him. When the other disciples heard about the request James and John had made, they, of course, became indignant about it. It is apparent in the scriptures that Jesus didn't allow this feeling to fester long before he stepped in to bring it to a screeching halt. Jesus called the group together and, without embarrassing them with a review of what had just gone on, pointed out that neither selfish ambition nor bitter jealousy has any place in the family and the kingdom of God. And he begins to explain to these men how differently heaven views greatness. You'll notice that Jesus did not condemn the desire for greatness. Rather, he taught that the way to greatness is not through or by lording over others. Greatness, according to Jesus and kingdom principle, greatness in the kingdom of God consists in giving of oneself and humble service. So if you want to be great in the kingdom, you humble yourself and you service, you serve wherever you're asked 
to serve. So greatness can only be secured through true, humble ministry. There's an interesting contrast in the parallelism of verses 33 and, and 44. In verse 33, the contrast is between being great and being a minister. And in verse 44, it is between being first or chiefest and then being a slave. Literally, Jesus tells his disciples and us that the one who desires to be first, that is chief, preeminent, of the great must be the servant. Literally, in Jesus' terms, and according to translations, a slave. Further, he must be servant of all if you want to be great in the kingdom of God. In other words, the greater one who wishes to become in the kingdom the greater the self-giving. So if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, the more you give yourself to it, the more that will happen and come to pass. Jesus did not exclude even himself from this principle. The king of all kings gave himself to ministry, the zenith of which was his self-sacrifice on the cross. So for this purpose... Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus took on the form of a servant or a slave. His death was the supreme act of humility, service, and self-giving. I want to make a statement in passing here tonight. and I've often pondered at, at, at the, the, the men and women here on earth that work in the kingdom of God that we just so applaud and think so much of. Uh, rightfully so, and when that person passes, what heaven must be like. But then you find that that pastor that's ministered somewhere for years and years and years and just was never in the limelight, was never you know, asked to do this, asked to do that, whatever, could pastor a very small church for years, giving himself to it. In other words, he ministered to the expectation of the kingdom and the vineyard that God gave him to minister in. What is it going to be like in heaven when both of these people meet up? It's something to think about. I believe the Bible implies that the people we think are going to be amazing in heaven are really not going to be those that we think, but it's going to be those people we've never heard of, never knew their name, never met them. So what does it mean to be a servant? There's two specific Greek words that are translated servant in the New Testament. They're, they are the two are synonymous, of course. One means bond slave, and the other means deacon or minister. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever known a deacon in a local church? A board member. A person, not really a board member, but a person maybe that has board member qualities and maybe does do some board member responsibilities, but also has some ability to minister. They're deacons. The book of Acts talks about deacons. It's interesting to me that the Bible translates that word as a bond slave. And I wonder how many deacons we know that feel that same way about themselves. Again, the conduit of ministry comes through. The conduit of ministry is humility. That's what brings a person to genuine ministry according to Jesus. So both of these words denote that a man is not at his own disposal. 
but is his master's purchased property. That's what it means. Bought, literally bought, purchased to serve his master's needs, to be at his beck and call every moment. The slave's sole business is to do as he is told. Christian service, therefore, means first and foremost living out a slave relationship to one's Savior. We don't particularly care for the terminology, but it is biblical. It's scriptural. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. You've been purchased. Does everybody understand that? You've been bought. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So once we convert, once we're born again, we don't belong to us anymore. We belong to Him. And the true idea of the kingdom principle here is that you do whatever God asks you to do whenever He asks you to do it with no questions asked. And you do it humbly. It's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? So what work does Christ set His servants to do? The way that they serve Him is by becoming these servants are literal slaves of their fellow servants and being willing to do anything in their power to help them. And this is where I was applauding Grace Church at the outset of this presentation tonight. I've seen so many of you, your response to Ukraine, your response to our missionaries, your, your response to needs here in our own community has been phenomenal. I remember when the flood of 2016 happened, how people, men in this church, women in this church rallied huge big time, hours every day, going far above and beyond the call of duty to help people with their homes, to bring them food to eat. Uh, if I remember correctly, our ladies over just a few days span made close to 1,200 sandwiches and put with that a, a bag of potato chips, a brownie, a, a, a bottle of water, etc. And we had people shooting out of this church all day long delivering those bags of food to people. Had people stop and say, hey, I have a family member down the street. Can you bring them some? The people who come all the way back to the church, get another load and take it all the way back. Amazing. It's, it's, it's impressive to me how the people of God respond. They, uh, after a funeral is a good example at how people will rally behind a family, cook food, bring food to their house. Somebody told me just recently, uh, had a family member pass away, and just a couple of people from the church, uh, unsolicited, nobody asked them to do it, but brought several, several days in a row, brought dinner to that family. And uh, everything was cooked. Everything was ready. I'm amazed at, at the people in this church with your amazing, amazing spirit about you to want to serve, to want to help your fellow servant. This is what love means. As Jesus himself showed at the Last Supper when he played the slave's part, he played the role of a slave. When he washed his disciples' feet, he also washed the feet of his betrayer. So when the New Testament speaks of ministering to the saints, it, it means not primarily preaching to them, but devoting time, going through trouble, um, devoting time to them. And when they're in trouble and uh, you going through trouble and, and you bring them substance to give them in all the practical ways that you can. The essence of Christian service is loyalty to the king, expressing itself in care for its servants. Only the Holy Ghost can create in us that kind of love towards Jesus 
that will overflow in the imaginative sympathy and practical helpfulness towards his people. There's, there's a couple here tonight that uh, every, I talk to them and talk to them often. And uh, they'll tell me how they went and picked up so-and-so and brought them to the doctor. That people who don't have transportation, I carried them to the doctors and I carried them to the hospital. And I brought them to the grocery store and, and what have you. It's an amazing thing. That's truly an amazing thing. Now, I don't know if I'll get through all of this material tonight, but this is the point that I really want to come to. This is what I want to have you understand. There was a French philosopher named Maurice Blondel once said, if you really want to understand a man, don't just listen to what he says, but watch what he does. One of the great mysteries of the gospel is the strange attraction for the unattractive and the desire for the undesirable that Jesus had. He was attracted to the unattractive and he had a desire to minister to the undesirable. His was a mysterious love for the unlovely and the unlovable. In his reply to the disciples' question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 18, Jesus abolished any distinction between the elite and the ordinary in the Christian community. According to one translation in Matthew chapter 18, verse 2, the Bible says, so Jesus called a child. He called a child, had him stand in front of them, and said, I assure you that unless you change and become like children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter as he sets the child on his knee. The child is unself-conscious. The child is incapable of pretense. Listen to pastor. The kingdom belongs to people who aren't trying to look good or impress anybody, even themselves. They're not plotting how they can call attention to themselves, worrying about how their actions will be interpreted or wondering if they will get gold stars for their behavior. When Jesus tells us to become like little children, he is inviting us to forget what lies ahead. To forget what lies behind. Don't worry about the future and don't worry about the past. Comment was made about little Avery Henson uh, tonight before church and, and we shared a few smiles and laughs. But I didn't see one ounce of worry in that little boy's eyes. I didn't see one ounce of pretense. He don't even remember yesterday at this point. If he does, it's very... It's very minuscule, and I don't think he has any fears about tomorrow. What Jesus is saying to us, and this is what I've come to teach tonight, it's the heart of this presentation, is whatever we've done in the past, be it good or evil, great or small, is irrelevant to our stance before God today. And God is not going to judge you today based on your tomorrow. Unless you become as a child. It's only now 
It's only now that we're in the presence of God. If you'll work on the right now of your relationship with God, the rest will take care of itself. The Apostle Paul grasped the full meaning of Jesus' teaching on becoming like a child, serving as a literal human coat rack during the stoning of Stephen. And as a ringleader in the slaughter of Christians, Paul might, as, might well have become pathological had he not dwelt on his pre-Christian past. Or had he dwelt on his pre-Christian past, excuse me. He said, this one thing I do, this is becoming a child. This one thing I do in Philippians 3, he said, I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forth to those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, I can only say that forgetting all that lies behind me and straining forward to what lies in front. God help us tonight. Whatever past achievements might bring us honor, whatever past disgraces that, make, that, that might make us blush, all have been crucified with Christ and exist no more except in the deep recesses of our own mind. It is, it is important to remember the Jewish attitude toward children. Listen to pastor tonight. We don't think this way in our culture, but they did. In Jewish culture... In first century Palestine, if you could understand how the adults of that culture felt about children, you would even understand even more the full force of what Jesus was teaching here. In New Testament times, the child was considered of no importance, meriting little attention or favor. The child was regarded with scorn. They had no status at all. They did not count. I even grew up in a culture as a child where you didn't talk when adults were in the room. You sat on the couch and you'd be quiet or go outside and play. You were not allowed to speak. I have two grandsons that would explode if that was imposed on them. They did just literal internal combustion. Just But they were regarded with scorn. They had no status. They did not count. For the disciples of Jesus, becoming like a little child means the willingness to accept oneself as being of little account and to be regarded as unimportant. The little child who is in the image of the kingdom is a symbol of those who have the lowest places in society, the poor and oppressed, the beggars, the tax collectors, the people Jesus often called the little ones or the least. Jesus makes it clear that if you desire a place of prominence within his kingdom, you'll have to become a servant to others. So herein is the law of service, and I'll begin to bring this to a conclusion. In the second chapter of John's gospel, we find a very interesting story from which many sermons have been preached, and I've preached my share of them. I want to say about the child thing again, I, 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 would, I, I would be remarkable if we could remember that for our next baby dedication. The children in that culture were of no count. They, they had no merit. They're not allowed to speak. Just get out from under my feet and go away. 
but Jesus changed all of that. Huge. As a matter of fact, went as far as to say, unless you become like one of these kids, you really will never understand kingdom principle and concept. But in the second chapter of John's gospel, it's the story of the wedding of Cana, where the wedding party ran out of wine and Jesus is to perform his very first recorded miracle. It's interesting to me that Mary, knowing that Jesus was her son, and in that culture, children didn't count, they didn't matter, etc. His first miracle was introduced to him through a mother-son relationship. Another thought for another time, perhaps. But after Mary, the mother of Jesus, said to him at the wedding party that they had run out of wine, Jesus said to her, that's not my problem. My time has not yet come. Now watch this. The mother turns to the servants and said, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And standing nearby were six stone water pots, as you know, and were used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And each could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus told his servants to go fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip out of it and bring it to the master of the ceremony. So the servants followed his instructions. Then in verse 9, something of great value and interest comes to light. When the ruler of the feast had tasted that the water was not that the water was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the Bible said the servants knew. Everybody say the servants knew. This is a very interesting association and and, and something that, that we need to get our head around here. Sometimes servants, especially in the Bible, Servants know things that kings and presidents, rulers, do not. They're privy to conversations that nobody else is. They're they're allowed sometimes to be around their master when no one else is. Now, they have to be there for his or her master's beck and call, but nonetheless, they hear everything that's said. So they know things that no one else knows. Could this be another reason why Jesus said, if you really want to be in the kingdom and really want to understand the kingdom and really get a revelation of the kingdom, you have to be a servant because I'll whisper things that only you'll be able to hear where the kings and the mighty and the powerful and the influential and all of these people and all of these different social brackets, they'll never hear me say. But if you're a servant and will do what I ask you to do, I'll keep you close to me. And I will tell you things, and you will hear things out of me that no one else will ever hear. Who was it that told Naaman that if the prophet had come ask you to do some great thing, you would have done it? So why are you sitting here whining about going washing the Jordan River? Who told him that? His servant. You see. You see how this works? I'm telling you, servants know things that rulers are ignorant of. In conclusion, tonight the, there was a great violinist, if I pronounce his name right, uh, looks like Niccolo Paganini, willed his marvelous violin to the city of Geneva, the city of his birth, on condition that the instrument must never be played again. The wood of such an instrument, while used and handled, wears only slightly, but set aside, it begins to rapid, rapidly decay, and so... Uh, 
Paganini's, uh, Paganini, however you pronounce his name, his exquisite mellow-toned violin has today become worm-eaten and useless in its beautiful case, valueless, except that it's a relic. A moldering instrument is a reminder that a life withdrawn from all service to others loses its meaning. A Christian's unwillingness to serve may soon destroy his capacity for usefulness. I want to conclude tonight and share with you this, I think it's an amazing illustration. John Kenneth Galbraith, in his autobiography, A Life in Our Times, illustrates the devotion and service of a woman named Emmy, or excuse me, Emily Wilson, his family's housekeeper. She was just the housekeeper. It had been a wearying day. And John Kenneth said, I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I took a nap. Shortly after he laid down for his nap, the phone rang and Lyndon B. Johnson was calling him from the White House. He said, get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. She said, he is sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. This is a president of the United States calling. He said, well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. She said, no, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. Ken said when he called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. The president said, tell that woman I want her here in the White House. Miss Wilson's story illustrates how that when we do what we can, and are called to do as servants, God will naturally see to it that we are promoted to the ranks of his kingdom. So in conclusion tonight, again, Mark 10, 43 and 44, according to the Message Bible, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. I want to say again to the Ladies that wiped the feet of all the people that came out of those basins a couple of Sundays ago. Thank you. For the people who take other people to the doctor's office, thank you. For those that fix sandwiches and food and bring it to families who are grieving, thank you. Somewhere in eternity, things are going to be revealed. It's going to be quite shocking to us, and I'm sure of it. And I thank you, Grace Church, for your amazing service to one another to our community, and to the kingdom of God. God bless you tonight. You're dismissed, and we'll look forward to seeing you Sunday morning.